Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you with thankful hearts this morning for allowing us the privilege to gather together corporately to worship you in truth and spirit. We pray, Father, that your spirit may come this day and that your spirit may teach us that which we need to know. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own ignorance, but you have given us your very word. And as we open your word, Father, and study your word this day, we pray that we might truly and rightly apply it to our lives so that we might be more like Christ. We pray, Father, wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day, that there would be those that would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that as your gospel goes forth even here, that there may be fruit as a result. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed us in so many ways, and we give you praise and honor and glory for what you have done in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to work in us to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray, Father, that you may use us in this world to be light in this dark day. How we pray, Father, that you would guide us and direct us by your Spirit to those who need to know Christ. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us this day. We know that there are many that are away visiting with families, and we pray that as they worship with their families in different churches that they may be blessed, that you would bring them also back to us safely. We pray, Father, for those who need your healing hand upon their body, that you would be pleased to restore their health. And, Father, that they would give you praise for your goodness in their life. We pray, Father, for those that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual soul. We pray that they would not forsake the assembling together of the brethren, but they would be renewed by your spirit and come back. We pray, Father, that as you use us, even this day, to bring honor and glory to your name, that we would constantly be thinking upon your greatness, how majestic and holy you are, and that we would give you praise throughout this day. All this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me again to Mark chapter 11, and we will pick up where we left off a few weeks ago with verse 27 through 33. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 27, and we will read through verse 33. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, the elders, came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? And if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to him, said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You'll have to excuse me this morning. My throat is a little dry due to a cold. So I know you do not have a cup of water like I do, so I hope you do not envy my water. The term biblical authority refers to the extent of Scripture and its authoritiveness over mankind his beliefs, and his conduct, stating that God has revealed himself in Scripture and that God himself has breathed forth Scripture. It speaks to the issue of biblical inerrancy, infallibility, interpretation, criticism, and the law. And this is an issue that many have to deal with in our day, and it has divided even denominations. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher there in London in the 1900s, said, If I understand modern religion at at all, the whole question of authority is one of the most important problems confronting us. 
There's no doubt that the things are as they are in the Christian church throughout the world today because we have lost our authority. We are faced by the fact that the masses of people outside the church, they are there, I suggest, because the church has, in one way or another, lost its authority. As a result, the people have ceased to listen or to pay any attention to its message. I believe Martin Lloyd-Jones is correct in what he says. The modern church today understands very little about biblical authority. The central issue of this is that if you belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords, you must bow to His authority. And Christ's kingdom is a ruling kingdom. And if you are in the kingdom of Christ, then you are a subject of Christ, and you are to submit to all that Christ has commanded us to do. But yet in the church today, many have relinquished this, and they hold to their autonomy. They think that they can do whatever they want to, live whatever life they want to, and still proclaim to be a Christian. I mean, as I passed by the reservoir this morning, I looked over to the right and I saw the parking lot below the levee there, and it was filled up. Now, why was it filled up? Because people are doing exactly what their heart desires to do. They're fishing. They're enjoying the day. They have completely ignored the commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Keep it separate. Keep it separated from other days. Now, if you were to go ask most of those when they pull in this afternoon from fishing all day, now, are you a Christian? Most of them would say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Why weren't you at church? Well, today I decided to go fishing instead of going to church. Do you understand what God's Word says? That God's Word is authoritative and that God has said to keep the Sabbath holy. And then they would argue with you and say, well, that's Old Testament teaching. That's not New Testament teaching. Well, my question would be then, well, did Jesus keep the Sabbath? What did Jesus have to say about the Sabbath? See, people completely ignore the authority of God's Word. And we see in this particular passage that we're looking at today that even the religious leaders did not understand Jesus' authority. Many are involved in religion, but they have no desire to submit to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's clear in this text that these religious leaders had no desire to submit to who Jesus was. Jesus had clearly shown his authority over the last three days. As we've looked at this passage in the last couple of sermons, and we saw what Jesus did as he entered into Jerusalem, he was exalted as the king of kings. They were laying palm branches before him. They were laying their robes. They were recognizing that he was the promised Messiah, even though they did not fully understand who the promised Messiah was or what he would accomplish. And then we saw that he entered into the temple and he rebuked them and cleansed the temple. And just before that, we saw that he had gone and said to the fig tree, because it did not produce any fruit, that it would be cursed and never bear any fruit any longer. So what we saw in Jesus, we saw that he had authority over the people as he entered into Jerusalem. He had authority over nature as he cursed the fig tree. And he had authority over the religious rulers and the temple as he cleansed the temple. There in verse 27 it says, They came again. So this was the day after Jesus had cleansed the temple. He returns to the temple. He would have been the talk of the town. Can you imagine what transpired after Jesus had cleansed the temple the day before? I mean, everyone was telling everyone. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem there for the Passover. And those that were not in the temple, they were telling those that were outside the temple what Jesus had done the day before. And here Jesus enters into the temple again... And the people are probably wondering, what in the world is he going to do today? The people were wondering, is he going to cleanse it again? Is he going to stir up a ruckus like he did the day before? 
Well, we see as he enters the temple, the religious leaders quickly approach him and they ask this question before Jesus could do any more harm to their establishment. Now, in this particular passage, I want us to learn something about authority. And there's four truths that I want us to see so that we might understand authority and how all are to submit to the authority of Christ. First of all, Jesus Christ was one who had and demonstrated authority. He had shown his authority throughout his ministry. He had shown his authority, as I just mentioned, over nature, over people, and even over the powers of darkness. Now, modern Christianity seeks to introduce Jesus as merely being a mild, gentle man from Nazareth, one who was harmless, one who was so loving that he wouldn't speak a harsh word to anyone. And they downplay Jesus' deity by overemphasizing his humanity. Yes, Jesus was meek. Jesus was mild. But that's only one side of Jesus. We see the other side of Jesus also demonstrated as we looked at in the last sermon when he cleansed the temple. Now, the New Testament clearly presents Jesus with absolute authority. The New Testament begins with his deity, as we've seen over the past couple of days in looking at the Christmas narrative. Jesus was God incarnate. And we see clearly that the Gospels spend the majority of their time on Jesus' deity. Most of the Gospel of Mark, these last chapters that we're looking at, deal with what? His death, burial, and resurrection, as well as the other Gospels. We see in Mark's Gospel, it moves rather quickly the first three years of Jesus' life. And then when it gets here to chapter 11, it slows down and covers this last week of his life. All of the rest of the book of Mark deals with the last week of his life, which emphasizes his deity. And John's gospel does the same thing. How does the gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. So John begins his gospel revealing that Jesus Christ is God. And he sets before us the extraordinary authority that Jesus has as the Son of God. We see the same wonderful truth in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1 when it speaks of how God spoke through Jesus Christ, his Son, who was the heir of all things. He was the creator of all things. That's the authority that he had. He spoke and all things came into existence. He said to us there in Hebrews that he was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person who is greater than all the angels revealing Christ's divine authority. Paul also tells us the same truth when he said that he had seen the risen Christ. God revealed Jesus Christ to him as his son and that Jesus Christ had divine authority forever and ever. And we see it in this gospel that we've been looking at. If you remember all the way back at the very beginning of Mark's gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is saying the reason why all the world should read his gospel, this which he has written, is because he is the Son of God. He is one with authority, supreme authority. And he begins his gospel by introducing Christ and then he introduces uh, John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist introduces Jesus and he says, After me will come one more powerful than I. And then we see that Jesus is baptized and anointed. And after he is baptized, what happens? A voice comes from heaven and says, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So scripture doesn't just hint 
or suggest his authority, but it clearly states who he is, that he is the Son of God, and all authority has been given to him, and one day he will judge all mankind as he sits on the throne of God. He has authority over all mankind, both the living and the dead. And many have no fear whatsoever of this authority. No fear of the coming judgment. But what claim has Jesus made? He has made the claim that He is King of kings, Lord of lords, and He is going to judge all mankind on that day. What are the consequences of those who have rejected Him? Well, the Scripture clearly teaches us that by His authority, He will separate the sheep from the goat. And He will send those who are goats into an everlasting judgment. So all who reject His authority over their life will one day face Him on judgment day. And the authority that He has over them will be clearly seen. But all who accept Him and allow Him to have authority over their life and bow before Him and submit to Him and worship Him and fall before Him in wonder and love and praise will spend eternity with Him forever and ever. So we must be faithful to go forth and warn people of the coming judgment, warn people of the authority of Jesus over all mankind and call them to repentance and submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that they may be delivered from the coming judgment. Now second, unbelievers are angered by the authority of Jesus. Luke tells us in chapter 19, verse 47, Jesus was teaching at the temple every day, But the priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were intended on killing him. Isn't that interesting? Here's one preaching the truth. And the religious leaders get so upset at him teaching in the temple that they were intending on killing him. Listen to what John MacArthur says. Jesus' message at the temple was likely a summary of what he had taught throughout his ministry. He surely taught about the wretchedness of sin and the folly of hypocrisy, legalistic false religion that would not restrain sin, the hopelessness of trying to achieve righteousness by one's own effort, the folly of vain prayers and superficial religious deeds performed to be seen by men rather than God. So therefore, in what Jesus was saying, the religious leaders probably were gritting their teeth in anger because he was exposing their own sinfulness. He was exposing their hypocrisy. He had already done much damage to them in speaking about them on other occasions, just as John the Baptist had done as well. And we see that he had wrecked their prophet and not only one time, but two times in cleansing the temple. And we see that Jesus' authority is seen in his courage to stand against these religious leaders. His self-confidence as he taught them there in the temple, as he walked through the temple and people followed him and he spoke to them about God's word. Now this time, they thought they were ready for him. As he came into the temple, they rush up to him quickly to confront him with this question. And and there's three groups of people that are mentioned here. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And these three groups were designated by the Sanhedrin to come to Jesus and seek to entrap him. The Sanhedrin was Israel's supreme court, like what we have in the United States. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members who ran the religious affairs of Israel. And these three groups who made up the Sanhedrin could not stand Jesus, as mentioned by Luke, that they were intending on killing him. 
the chief priest, we could call them the senior priests, temple priests. They were the ones, of course, most disturbed by what Jesus had done the day before because they had lost a lot of profit in what he had done in cleaning out the merchants and the money changers. So they were really upset. The second group there, the pharisaical scholars of that day who were called the teachers of the law, were the ones who had some 613 laws that you were to keep, and they made sure that people kept them, and they would teach people there in the temple. These were the ones that Jesus approached when he was 12 years old, came into the temple, and the things that he had to say amazed them. And then the third group, the elders, were the lay nobility of the land, the men of substance, of old wealth of Israel. Now, this was the religious establishment of the day. Jesus faced them, and he began to teach them as far as what was about to happen as far as their cherished institution, this temple. We know that he tells them that this temple will be destroyed. Of course, they don't understand what he's talking about. And when he says, and I will rebuild it in three days, they, of course, thought that he was talking about the temple that they were in, but he was, of course, talking about his own body. But yet, at the same time, he also had issues to speak about the temple, and we will see that in coming uh, chapters ahead of us here in Mark is what he had to say about the temple. But yet, the temple was the center of activity for Israel. Without it, there would be no priests, there would be no elders, there would be no sacrifice. And Jesus was declaring to them that the end is coming as far as the temple is concerned. That all of this will be dismantled. You will no longer have this place of worship. All things will be made new. Now for three years, these men had heard and seen Jesus do miraculous works and signs. They could not deny the things that he had done, nor could they stop to him. They on one occasion did what? They attributed the works that he had done to Satan, said that he does these things by the power of Satan, and that was ridiculous, and Jesus showed them how ridiculous that was. On another occasion, just recently before this, They tried to get rid of the evidence. After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, it says that they planned to put to death Jesus and Lazarus. Now, why would they put to death Lazarus? Because he'd been raised from the dead, so they had to get rid of the evidence. Now, these are real godly men, right? Planning to kill Jesus and planning to kill Lazarus. But yet the people were so amazed at all the things that Jesus did, they were flocking to him. And of course, this upset the religious leaders. But yet they saw his authority in preaching the word of God. And the people knew that he was the promised prophet, the Messiah, even though they did not fully understand what that encompassed. Now he arrives here in Jerusalem in that great celebration on Palm Sunday, as we saw three weeks, four weeks ago. And as they followed, he cleansed the temple. As I mentioned, this was the second cleansing of the temple. And he confronts the self-righteous leaders in the temple. And they are filled with indignation due to the fact that Jesus had exposed them. Jesus had embarrassed them. And he had halted their prophets that they were making there in the temple. And Jesus had been a headache for them. For over three years they had been putting up with Jesus and they were trying to do everything they could to get rid of him. Time and time again they had tried to entrap him with their questions. It seemed like after a while they would have learned and they would have stopped asking him questions, but they didn't learn, and they kept asking him questions, and here they are on this next occasion, and they asked him this question. There's two questions there in verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, earlier, Mark, they had asked him a similar question. 
after he had healed the lame man and also told the lame man that his sins were forgiven, they asked him this question. Why, what authority do you have to forgive sin? For only God could forgive sin. Now they wanted to know who gave him such authority. To say the things that he had said and to do the miracles that he had done. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds very smartly. Uh, You know, the Proverbs tell us what? Do not answer a fool. Well, he just replied to them, let me ask you a question. And he says, if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. Well, we see that Jesus trumps them again. Such an attitude as what these men show is very obvious in society today. I mean, when people began to be envious and filled with hatred, all because of their own power and their their threatening to be put into a corner to where they lose their power. I mean, we see it in politics today, do we not? I mean, forget all common sense. All most of our politicians want, it seems like, is power. Power to be able to control and to outdo the other person. And there's so much hatred and envy in politics. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would get into politics. But we do need good godly men in politics. So we need to pray for that. But yet this is a similar occasion here. I mean, this is so obvious to what is even going on in our day and time as far as people trying to trump one another and exalt their power. This attitude will destroy a society, and it was destroying the nation of Israel. But yet we see that this attitude can also raise its ugly head in the church. I've been in churches where deacons seek to control everything. They think that God has anointed them as the rulers of the church. Now, is that what Scripture teaches us, that a deacon is a ruler of the church? No, the scripture clearly teaches us that a deacon is a servant of the church. The elders are to be the rulers of the church. And they're to serve, the deacons are to serve under them and under the membership. But yet, often in churches, they have splits because there's a power grab. And it destroys the work of God. It can also happen in denominations. When men seek to control the pulpit by controlling the seminaries. Seeking to control men to seek to make them moderate in their thinking so that they don't become so narrow-minded, which we would call biblically-minded. You know, anytime you're biblically-minded, you're automatically called narrow-minded. Well, we are not to be any more narrow-minded than Jesus. We're simply to proclaim what Jesus proclaims to people, and then you'll be called narrow-minded. Well, Jesus was narrow-minded when it came to the Scriptures because he upheld the Scriptures. But the entire religious system at this particular time was rotten to the core, and Jesus exposed it. He had revealed the filth that was on the inside of the cup. The Pharisees tried to make themselves look good, and he said, what, the cup looks really good on the outside, but you look on the inside, it's filled with filth. And he exposed them. And he was exposing the religious system of that day. It was beyond Reformation, much like the Catholic Church when Reformation came about. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mean, Martin Luther was not seeking to bring a new church about. He was doing what? He was seeking to bring Reformation about in the Catholic Church, but it was so rotten to the core that he brought about Reformation and a Protestant Reformation, and therefore a healthy church. Now, there are many church members who also can fit in this same category. They think that they're okay, but something in their life is not right. I mean, when you confront them with biblical truth and what the Scripture says, they get upset. I mean, what right do you have to question my salvation, someone may say? Well, the scriptures tell us to do what? To examine yourself to see if you're in the the faith. 
And we see quite clearly that a person is to be challenged as far as his own relationship with the Lord. I remember years ago, a man named, or pastor named Bob Mount, just about 40 years ago, went to a church, your typical church with a number of lost people in the church, even though they were church members. And he began to challenge them on what a real Christian was, a biblical Christian. And he not only began to challenge the congregation, he he began to go door to door to the members and, and speak to the ones that had not attended church in a long time. And he went to one man's house and this particular man opened the door. He said, who are you? He said, well, I'm the pastor of the church that you say you're a member of. And the man, of course, stood there kind of shell-shocked. He said, can I come in and talk to you? So he let him come in, and he began to talk to him and explain to him what the Scripture says about who a true Christian is and that a true Christian will be faithful in worshiping God and serving God, and et cetera, et cetera, laying out the biblical truths to him. And the man began to get really angry with him. And he says, how dare you challenge my salvation? I know I'm saved. And, and Bob asked him, he said, well, tell me how you know I'm, you're saved. He said, because I walked the aisle as a nine-year-old boy, and I have a card, and I have that card in my cabinet, and I'll show you my card. And he went to the cabinet to get his card out, and he realized that the rats had done ate up his card. The rats had already eaten up his salvation that he thought he had. And that's where a lot of people fit. They think that because they did something as a child, they can get their ticket to heaven, and then they can live any way they want to for the rest of their life. That they don't have to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. That they don't have to live the Christian life. See, when a person is truly saved, he desires to live the Christian life. He desires to worship God. He desires to serve God. It's not something to where he's forced to do. No, he lovingly submits to Jesus Christ. The third thing we see is that Jesus challenges men to think about God and His authority. We see that Jesus gave them no direct answer, but instead He asked them these questions. He wasn't about, He wasn't simply being elusive, but He knew their motive. And it wasn't time for Him to reveal who He was. There was still some teaching that he had to do over the next few days before he went before the court and proclaimed that he was the Son of God. He still had to teach his disciples some important truths as we will see as we go through the last chapters of Mark. We see in Mark 14, 63, when Jesus is asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power coming with the cloud of heaven. So he will unashamedly reveal who he is before the priest and the Sanhedrin. But not on this occasion. It's not God's timing yet. And he knew that because he still had to teach some very important truth, which we will see in chapters 12 through 14. So all these things take place within a three-day period. It was not the time to provoke his enemy to arrest him. Instead, it was time for him to make them think so that he might show them just how hard their hearts were. So Jesus turns to them and he asks them that question there in verse 29. Now when they heard this question, they must have inwardly groaned. They probably thought, why in the world did we ask him another question? Every time we've asked him a question, he's turned it around on us. And they're probably thinking to themselves, this John the Baptist that he has brought up, he also was a burr in our saddle. He was of the priestly line, and he had a great impact upon the Jewish people. He had preached the need of repentance and salvation and baptism. And many had obeyed, many had repented, many had been baptized in the Jordan River. And these religious men had even gone out to see who John the Baptist was. Of course, when they went out to see who John the Baptist was, John the Baptist exposed them. He said, You broom of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce fruits in your own life in keeping with repentance. 
Don't you think it's all right with you because you have Father Abraham? It's no big deal that your parents were Jews. Out of these stones, God can raise up Jewish children to Abraham. Judgment is coming near and near. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Without godly fruit, you will be cut down. John's preaching did not win many friends, especially among the religious leaders. But the people knew that he was a prophet sent by God, that he was a man of God, and they followed him. John didn't preach in the temple. John didn't even pay the temple tax. He didn't rub shoulders with the religious people of his day. No, he preached in the wilderness, and he demanded that the sacrifice of a broken heart and total surrender unto the Lord. John proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lamb of God, that would take away the sins of the world. So Jesus Christ backed them into a corner and he asked them this question, was John appointed, self-appointed, or did God appoint him? Of course they knew the answer, but they weren't going to answer him. A similar question is asked to all men today. The questions confronting you and me is this, is Jesus Christ from God or simply a man? Is the New Testament from God or from men? Was Jesus Christ just a man or was he the Son of God? If Jesus Christ is simply another man, then his authority over my life is limited, just like any other human being who is given authority. I mean, people are given authority in our day and time, right? When you go to the airport and you come up to go and wait for the airplane, before you get to that section, what do you have to do? All kinds of crazy stuff. I don't think any of us like it, right? I mean, nobody likes being searched. Nobody likes taking their shoes off. Nobody likes taking their belt off. Nobody likes going through all of that, but we have to. Why? Because these individuals have authority. And if we don't do it, we're not going to get on that plane, right? But when that guy leaves the airport and goes home, what kind of authority does he have over you and me? None. The authority that he has is when he's at work in that particular office. Well, Jesus Christ has authority at all times because he's always in his office. He is Lord of Lord and King of King. Now, we saw that Jesus in replying to them and asking them this question, put them in a situation to where they had to admit that either Jesus had the authority or they had to say that he was a mere man. Well, they were unwilling to do it. Now, if Jesus Christ, who is who he says he is, then they must admit that he had this authority from God. And when you read about his kindness and his holiness and his loving nature and his willingness to die for sinners, what person deserves the right more than him to have such authority over mankind? None would be the answer. Only Christ has such authority. Which leads us to my final point. Unrepentant men show the hardness of their heart when confronted with God's truth. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's confronting them with his truth, with God's truth. We see that these religious men discuss among themselves how to answer Jesus. Now this isn't difficult for us to understand because before we came to Jesus Christ, we were just like them. We were willing to argue against those who were trying to teach us the truth. Today, higher education teaches that there's no absolute truth, no absolute standard. And it even encourages men to lie to obtain what they desire in life. Think about abortionists. Do you know that when abortion became the law of the land, that there were a number of doctors that went before the committees and they said, well, there's this many abortions that are happening in the back alleys. 
Well, one of those men was Nathan Bernard, who later repented and became one of the strongest advocates against abortion. And they were asking him, or he wrote it in his book, he said, what we did when we went before Congress, we just simply lied. We made up a number. We didn't have any number as far as how many were uh, actually taking place. We just lied. In other words, there was no absolute standard for those who were abortionists. They wanted to get the law passed. Likewise, these men, these religious leaders, were caught between a rock and a hard place. Their their status was so important to them, they were willing to do whatever they could to obtain the power and continue to possess it over the people. If they replied that John's baptism was from heaven, they would be confirming Jesus in his position. And if they confirmed Jesus in his position, then they would have to acknowledge their own sinfulness in not being baptized and repenting for their own sins. So they couldn't say, we certainly believe that John was sent from heaven. So they couldn't say that. But neither could they speak against John. Because they knew that if they discredited John in any way, that the people, the crowd would be upset with them because they esteemed John as a prophet and considered him even to be a martyr. So these men did not want to alienate the people, but neither did they want to introduce or endorse Jesus. So being caught between a rock and a hard place, what did they do? What could they do? They lied. They said... We don't know. They knew. They were just unwilling to admit it. They believed that John was merely a man. They did not see John as the prophet, the forerunner of Christ, that God had sent him. They, They denied that. But they feared men. So they would not speak what was on their mind. Of course, as they stand before Jesus, they've already denied that he is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and they're doing everything in their power to get rid of Jesus. Now again, many today fit into this same category. They love their position of power. They love their sin. They love this world too much to surrender to Jesus Christ. They don't believe in Jesus Christ because they know if they believe in Jesus Christ that it will cost them everything. And they don't want to lose the things of this world. So therefore, they continue in their sinfulness and harden their heart just like these religious leaders did. These men were not convinced by all that Jesus had done even though they had seen with their own eyes the miracles that he had done. They had seen all of the evidence of him being the Son of God. But they rejected They were just like Pharaoh. I mean, think of all the plagues there in Egypt. And Pharaoh saw them, but he still would not let the people of God go. Not until the last plague to where his own son, firstborn, was taken. And then, of course, he recanted. So many who fit into this same category, who love their position, who love their sins, who are unwilling to surrender to Jesus Christ, who are unwilling to count the cost, do just as Pharaoh did, and they harden their heart against the truth. Many follow their own desires. And they even see radically changed lives. And they attribute it to man instead of God. They may say something like this, well, he finally turned over a new leaf. Or this year he kept his New Year's resolution. Or getting married straightened him out. You've heard people say that before. In other words, they're unwilling to attribute a life-changing experience to God. 
God changing their life. They're unwilling to give God the credit. They won't allow themselves to be persuaded even if a person's life is radically changing and they become a new creation. They're unwilling to give God any glory. They won't go to church. They won't attend an evangelistic meeting. They won't listen to a conversation that speaks about God's power and salvation. They will have nothing to do with God until they're in desperate need. And then they may throw up a prayer to him. See, the chief priest told Jesus, we don't know if John came from heaven or not. Now, what more evidence did they need? I mean, for three years, Jesus had done great and wonderful things. Well, they were kind of like in the parable Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember what the rich man said? If you will only send someone back from the dead. And Jesus' response in that parable was, but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And do we not see the evidence of that? You go out and you tell people that one has risen from the dead. That Jesus Christ has come forth from the grave. Do they believe then? No. They continue to harden their heart. Now when Jesus hears their answer, he doesn't say, I don't know either. Nobody knows. We're all stuck in the same boat without a paddle. No, instead he says, then I am not going to tell you by what authority I do what I do. Do you see the implication of that? See, the Lord of glory doesn't have to answer any of your questions. He is not under interrogation. We are. Why should Jesus tell you or me anything? Is he obligated to any of us? Well, we know the answer to that question. No. Remember what Paul says in Romans? He says, who are you, O man of God? Who are you to question God? See, we forget sometimes that we are the ones that are created, not God. We are the ones that are submit to Him. He doesn't submit to us, but man reverses that role. He tries to say that God is his genie. God, give me the things that I want. Do these things for me. Who are we to question God? Who are we to demand of God anything? Man must realize that he is the sinner. Jesus Christ is God. Man has forfeited his right to truth and knowledge due to the sin of our father Abraham, I mean Adam, and due to our own sin. A lot of people say, I just want God to treat me fairly. I just want Him to be just. And they have no understanding. See, you and I have no right to hear the love of Jesus. We have no right to be invited to come to Him for rest. We have no right to even be offered forgiveness for our sins. No right even to heaven. If the Lord gives us a crumb from His table, that's more than you and I deserve. All men only deserve one thing. For God to deal with us fairly and justly. And if God deals with us fairly and justly, what does that mean? That we'll be sent to an everlasting hell. Yet in His mercy, God sent His only begotten Son. He lived His rich and blameless life. He shed His blood and atonement for our sins. He rose from the dead for our sake. And He offers to be man's Savior and to go with us through life 
and then take us to heaven when we die. And we deserve none of this good news. But He patiently tells us of His grace and of His mercy. And until you and I understand Jesus' authority and bow in submission to Him, we will continue on the road that leads to destruction and death. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like these religious leaders. Don't harden your heart against grace and mercy. Instead, look to Christ. Look to Jesus alone, who is able to save, able to save any sinner who repents and trusts in Him and Him alone. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in this place this day of causing those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior to look to him in repentance and faith. Father, do not allow anyone to be deceived by Satan and trusting in something that they have done, but cause them to see that only in Christ can we find salvation. How we pray, Father, that we who are Christians would submit in every way to Christ's authority, that we would be faithful in telling others of this great work of salvation, and that you would use us, Father, to go forth from this place today and be light in this dark world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.